Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us for another Woodsman podcast. I don't know about you, but I am fired up. We are within two weeks of our Pennsylvania archery opener. Now, if you guys are one of the lucky hunters in Southeast PA or Southwest PA, you already got a start on us. So hopefully you're able to get out and maybe even connect on something, but at least get out and enjoy creation and hopefully see some good deer movement. I have been vigorously shooting my bow, making sure my muscles are tuned in and ready to go and making sure my equipment's set up and ready to go. <clears throat> I switched a new arrow this year. I started shooting Easton Axis arrows, and I put a 60-grain steel steel uh, outs, half-in, half-out cert on the front with my fixed-blade broadhead. And I didn't really do that for any other reason than structural integrity up at the front. The, the hidden inserts, I used to shoot the arrow, and they uh, were easy to break if you hit something hard. So I put that half out on. So it made my arrow a little bit heavier. So I had to put a new tape on my bow and it made it slower, but I'm really impressed with how well my broadheads are shooting. Uh, I switched to a four fletch with a left helical and I am and very impressed with how well my broadhead flight is. Not that I wasn't able to get good broadhead flight in the past, but I had such minimal tuning with these arrows that I was really pleased with it. So just getting tuned in and ready to go, finalizing everything to make sure I've got that mental confidence to make a shot. This past weekend would have been the weekend of the 18th, and we did our last round of cereal rye top dressing on food plots. So if you listen back to our food plot podcast we had in August, um, you would hear what I planted and why I planted it. And uh, I encourage you to go listen to that because we get into some detail of, of why and the logistics of planting and things like that. But we have uh, the peas, beans, and oats on one side and brassicas on the other. And we had gone through around Labor Day and top dressed the beans, peas, and oats with 150 to 200 pounds per acre of rye. Actually, take, take that back. It was 100 pounds per acre of rye in some of them. In the places where we have high deer pressure, we went to 200 pounds. So we top dressed that and then wanted to go out one last time. And we still had some rye left over from the, the bulk tank that we bought and wanted to just use it up and fill in the gaps, make sure that there was no bare space left on our soil. That way, when the, the the legumes, the beans, the peas had been consumed in this early portion of the season, there was green filling in that would overwinter and it would be a constant attraction from the beginning of the hunting season to the end. So we went through and what we had left, we top dressed and I was really impressed to see how well they started to hammer our food plots. We had a couple of utilization cages out, really get a sense of how well they were growing. And you could see that there was differences in different portions of the property where there was heavier browse pressure than others. But regardless, there was a lot more browse pressure now than there was in August. So we're definitely establishing a pattern of use. 
And the one great thing about this is normally the month of September is uh, we, is quiet time. Try not to go around and make too much noise. Stay out of the woods. No more human scent. No more human intrusion. And get those deer establishing a pattern of going to food, going back to bed, and not being bothered by us. And the only exception to that is this day where we'll go and make sure we overseed plots for the, and it is for the greater good. We're making sure we've got enough food to last us through hunting season. So with that disturbance, driving through a, a property, <clears throat> we're driving through in a pickup truck with the, with the box. So it is uh, a disturbance, but it's minimal, I'm going to say, but it gives us the opportunity to pull cards one more time in trail cameras that haven't been pulled for a few weeks. So any food plot or any, camera location that we would have drove past and we could just hop out and grab that card switch it and run it was a great opportunity and i was really pleased to see some new deer show up or deer that just hadn't showed up in summertime until uh, the, the end of summer early fall and some, some really some deer that really got me excited and i hope that you guys are all experiencing that as well so You've heard me talk a lot about private land, and I, I do have a passion for private land. I have a passion for food plots just because it's 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 my career choice. It's uh, it's just a true fascination of plant-animal interaction for me. But I really do like hunting public land, and I have a couple cameras out on public land close to my house that I have not been able to pull for the past month. And that's mainly because life gets in the way, and I'm sure many of you know if you're uh, a full-time full -time employee somewhere, a family, it gets a little tricky. So I have, I have uh, means to go and pull those cameras and see what we've got on there. I've also got a handful of cameras in my, in, in my public land area where my cabin is about two hours north from me. I've not pulled those since July. And they're in fall, what I would consider fall locations, close to swamps, close to bedding, areas I've had history of encounters with good deer, but wanted to get a camera on and see if I had any any real good pattern. So all that into consideration, I'm really looking forward to this hunting season. And one of the things I wanted to talk about today is really deciding throughout your hunting season when do you get aggressive? You can listen to podcasts. You can follow a lot of people on social media. And you're always going to hear a different answer of what somebody thinks. And there's no one size fits all to coming up with a strategy for being aggressive and being patient. And one thing that I've really noticed, and I'm going to try to dissect for you a little bit, is private land versus public land. And since I'm hunting both, I'm just going to break down this evening what my strategy is between all these properties that I just described, these places that I'm hunting, and hopefully that that gives you an idea of how you want to treat each property. So first of all, I'm hunting three private parcels. One is a 250 acre, one is eight acres, one is two acres. The 8-acre property is a little less than an hour away from me, but the 2-acre is right behind my house, and the 250-acre is 10 minutes from me. 
So needless to say, during the week, if I have time, weekends that I might have other obligations throughout the time, I'm going to be spending time on those private land parcels. I put a lot of time, effort, and finance into them. I want to make the most of them. And when they're close and you have the itch to hunt, it's very tempting to just go out and hunt. So managing my time of field is really, really important. One of the things that you talk about or hear people talk about is, do you hunt the mornings in early season? For my 250-acre property that I'm hunting, I don't like to hunt mornings in the early season. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't hunt mornings in early season, but let me describe to you why I don't. The property is a mountain piece that is a south-facing slope, runs east and west, and runs up to the top. And we, there's, there's property we can hunt on the top, goes a steep ridge, and then, then the bottom is where the majority of the food is. When you have a property like that and you get cold snaps throughout the year, you're going to have a thermal pulling down that hill. And we've experienced this time and time again, especially if it's still. You get it, you'll get there and check the wind in the morning and the thermal pulls down the hill, pulls down the hill. As the sun re- starts to peak, heats the ground up, you start to get that swirling effect. I mean, you can drop milkweed, you can puff a bottle and it'll be going down at one point. You'll get a breeze, you get that thermal shift, and it just starts to swirl a lot. Now, some properties, that's not a very hard thing to correct. You can adjust your access, you can adjust the terrain, and work to your advantage and still not impact that deer herd when they're going back to their bedding pattern. What I find with this property is crop fields below us, they're coming up in the morning. And whether the wind is swirling or whether it is pulling down the hill, we are running the risk that they're going to smell us at some point. If it's pulling down the hill, it's pretty obvious they're coming from below us. They're going to smell us in that that case. But even if I wait to be on stand at the right time of morning when the, the, the shift is occurring, um, that's going to be you know gray light. If it's 7 o'clock in the morning, the first part of the season, it's starting to warm up. I get a better wind, but I run the risk of bumping deer when I access certain stands. And you're still running the risk that that swirling wind is going to catch you between some of those bedding areas. I'm not hunting on food sources. I don't think I can get into those food sources without bumping them. So I'm trying to hunt those transition areas where I know they bed. If they're in those locations or if the wind swirls too much in those locations, I think it's detrimental. I really don't want to ruin those chances for late October when the testosterone level goes up in those buck and they're starting to cruise more predictably looking for those first receptive doe. During this early season, I often find that a lot of the mature buck I want to hunt are back in their beds anyway. So if I ruin a movement of them coming back to bed late or other deer that are coming back to bed and put too much scent in that area too early, I find it to just be a major issue. So I like to focus my hunting in the early part of the season, the first 15 to 20 days toward the evening, closer to food sources. And they've got to be food sources that I can get in and out of without spooking deer, because that's detrimental as well. I want to keep that line of movement to the food on my property, daylight active and not bump that. One of the trump cards that I'll play for a morning hunt is if we get a cold front. If we have a consistent 70 degree high and 60 degree low for a duration of time frame and then we have a 
10 to 15 degree drop in that temperature for the low the next morning, or we go from major winds or a major storm front that comes through and the backside of that storm front, you get a calming effect. Those can be good times for deer movement. Now, one thing I know a lot of biologists and research has, you know, proved or, or said otherwise that there's no significant increase in deer movement. And that could be true, but it seems like every time that I hunt in those situations, I catch deer on their feet and moving. And I often wonder, is it not necessarily because the conditions favor the deer movement, but do those conditions cause for a more consistent uh, weather opportunity, which I can get in and out? I don't have the humidity and the swirling winds with a front coming through, I have a more consistent wind. Is it making it a better situation for me to be in the woods and not be as intrusive? Another trump card that I'll play is if I have a specific pattern based on cameras on a deer. If I see a buck that's consistently going to a bedroom late or is using a specific travel corridor and it's coming through in the morning. If I think that I have the right wind, right weather pattern, and I won't cross his access path past that stand location, then I think that's a good reason to hunt him if you have that backhand knowledge. But if you're going into your property and you've got a really, really good stand, you might not know exactly which deer is going past, but it is a good stand. It's always been hot. I want to make sure that the time that I go in there is the best time. So using that combination of information can really, really help. So if I'm not hunting in the mornings quite as much, then I'm hunting in the evenings. And if I'm hunting in the evenings, I'm hunting close to food sources. So again, I want to hunt a food source that I can get in, get out, and not chase deer in either of those situations or while I'm on stand. The wind has to be consistent. The access paths cannot cross deer travel. It needs to be foolproof as much as possible. One of my favorite ways to hunt food plots really is a box blind with good gaskets. I know not everybody has those and everybody makes the joke that it's a rich man's game, but you can take the time and and build blinds and get windows with good gaskets and seal them off well to really contain your scent because you'll find those openings at least on this property that's big woods, those openings in big woods tend to be an eddy. And you find that this wind will swirl in those locations at some point throughout the night. If deer come into those openings and stop at a food plot, you cannot have them wind you. And if they wind you, it's blown. I've had so many cases where I used to hunt in tree stands on these openings. Deer come in, blows the field when it was just the doe, There was mature buck coming in there on a consistent basis, but we never saw them because the wind swirled. Even though it was a forecasted wind, uh, we just didn't have the stand placed appropriately. And I think the best way we've we've combated that is a box blind. And what's great about the box blinds, we've designed them that you can get in with a screened access, climb into the box blind, and you cannot see into the food plot until you sit down in your chair. That is so crucial if you're going to hunt with a bow at a food plot, in my opinion. So if you're going to hunt your food plots or right on top of them with the bow, just make sure that you're able to get in and get out and have the appropriate screening. It is better to sit back off of that food plot and hunt a travel corridor leading to it 
and not bump those deer that are stopped in that food plot than it is to hunt right on the food source and booger them every time that you get in, get out, or if the wind is swirling on stand. So everything that I just talked about with this private land parcel of 250 acres, I'm really trying to minimize how often I go into the property. Just because it's 250 acres doesn't mean I can hunt it anytime I want. I truly think that you can hunt once a week and depending on where and how you're going about it, it could still be too much on this property. Now I say this in regards to keeping this property as good the beginning of the season as at the end of the season. If I put all my eggs into one basket and overhunt this property too much, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot if I don't connect early. But also, if I'm really trying to hold deer on my property and try to get some of those deer that are two and three years old, or whatever that age class is that you're really striving to get them to, the, the younger deer on my property, I want them to be there in daylight and not be that you know make them subject to neighboring pressure where they might get harvested if i am not allowing them to feel safe and secure because i'm over hunting they're going to get pushed off of the property borders and then they're vulnerable to predation by a one inch trigger pull very easy for those deer to die because they do move and if they don't feel secure on you they're going to try somewhere else and that's generally why small properties don't succeed so 250 acres, I'm trying to make sure that as much of this property is devoted to deer all the time, that they're not seeing us, they're not hearing us, they're not smelling us. And if they do, it's very, very minimal on the outer edges of the property. I'm trying to maximize the borders and make that a secure location on the interior of this property. When I keep that interior of the property safe and secure, uh, the entire property is a sanctuary or it gives the illusion of a sanctuary at all times, then what I'm doing is I'm accessing lines of movement between bed and food, uh, a perpendicular access into that line of move movement and then chipping away at that movement little by little, trying to not let my access path cross there consistent paths and try not to interfere with them in bedding or feeding. Um, if I'm going to hunt a bedding area, I try to wait until later in the season in the mornings and get there early enough as they come back to bed and vice versa, hunting food in the evenings as they're coming towards food or near food. So pretty common thing that you're going to hear people do. But just the way this property sets up, I don't like to hunt mornings. I think there's a lot of properties that get hunted in the mornings and it's arguable of whether or not they should. Um, so looking at my two acre parcel and my eight acre parcel private land, what I'm doing in those pieces because they're smaller and I cannot hunt them near as much or I will overpressure them just the same, I'm really watching cameras to decide should I go hunt that property. Again, if I have something consistent, I will hunt it in the morning if I have the conditions to allow me. Otherwise, I am waiting for the opportune times based on history of that property and when deer typically move through it or based on MRI from camera data. So hopefully that gives you a little snapshot of ideologies in these properties. Now, one thing you got to keep in mind on these private parcels, anybody's private parcel for that matter, regardless of the size, 
if you are the only one hunting and are you and a buddy or you and a family member, you are the ones managing that hunting pressure. If you have the control, then you can dictate when the best weather day is, when the best time of year for that specific property is, whatever the case may be, but you can chip away at it in a controllable fashion, whereas on public land, you might not have that luxury because you're competing with everybody else who has access to that same ground. So that's going to bring me into my my next phase of public land and what I'm doing on these pieces. So why would I hunt public land when I have these three pretty good private parcels to hunt? There's a couple reasons. Number one, I think hunting public land is a challenge that makes you a better hunter. When I don't have the luxuries that are pre-placed for me, I tend to find that going and finding that most recent sign and finding bed and food with another card of hunting pressure and trying to manage other people and figure out where people are going, I think when you can capitalize on that on public land, it just makes you a step above. And I think you can learn things about your private parcel that you may hunt and vice versa. Another thing There's something about being in public land, especially in big woods. I tend to find myself going upstate Pennsylvania near my cabin where there's one half of the mountain is 34,000 acres of public land and the south side is 36,000 acres of public land. There's something about going out and being in big woods and being alone. It's a connection with creation. It's a connection with God for me. And it's, it's adding to that mystique of hunting for a good mature deer. There's also some sentimental value in going to the stomping grounds that my grandfather and his brothers and my dad and his brothers went to and experiencing the lay of the land and being part of that story and tradition in my cabin. I think there's a lot That means a lot to me and to be able to harvest a buck up there and add to those stories over the years is important. So naturally, since I have history on this piece of public land, I've got some places that I like to go or might have frequented more. It's the old stomping grounds that I know about. So I've got some good locations I can go to. But from my perspective, it's two hours away. It's public land. When I get there and have the opportunity, I'm going to dive into the absolute best position I can think of and try to figure out how to hunt it. If my wind is marginal, I'm going to try to hunt it on an offwind or a crosswind and get as close to an area I know that deer like to bed. And if I screw it up getting into that location or if they smell me on stand, I think it's a learning experience, but I have so much more area that I can go and try to recreate what just happened and learn from that mistake. When you do that on a private parcel, you're going to learn from your mistake, but you're confined to those borders. And those deer might not be coming back to that location anytime soon. It might be 20 to 30 days until you can have a consistent use of a bedding area or going to a food source. I don't think it changes too much on certain public land tracks, but you're, you're, not, you're not shooting yourself in the foot on that public land. 
When I first started hunting public land, I made the mistake of using the same strategies that I talked about earlier on private land. I tried to put all my eggs into one basket and hunt one or two specific locations and try to sneak in and gradually hunt my way in. And what I found is if I was going about it the wrong way, I might have educated those deer. Number two, if I waited back too long, I ran the risk of somebody else disturbing that movement before I did. And I definitely feel when it comes to public land or anything like that, I would rather be the one to ruin it than have somebody ruin it for me and I didn't get to learn in that experience or at least have an opportunity to maybe harvest the deer that I was after. When you hunt like this, I think it forces you to keep your options open. Rather than finding one or two really good locations, I think you're forced then to continue to scout, diversify your areas, and maybe you hunt one mountain one day, one mountain another day, or or you hopscotch back and forth. But in doing so, you're keeping pressure low on certain spots, but you're continuing to hunt. We're not necessarily hunting specific deer in this situation, or at least where I'm coming from. Not that you can't hunt specific deer on public land. Uh, there's plenty of people that do, but that is is keeping it fresh for you all the time. When you continue to move around and bounce from spot to spot, you're doing something that I feel, I hate saying this, but our, our we don't hear as much on our hunting industry. You're, you're forced to look, scout, find hot recent sign, and then try to set up on it and shoot a deer. I've made the mistake numerous times going to areas that were good in the past and setting up on those locations and then not having success during those hunts or seeing deer, but going for a walk later and finding that just a few ridges over there was hot sign that could have led me to see something or maybe I bumped deer on the next ridge over that were bedded in you know adjacent to an acorn flat that was heavily browsed on or one end of a chop off that I was hunting got a little bit too much pressure the week before and when I went in there there wasn't the deer concentration as there was when I went to the other end of the chop off that nobody had been into I think Continuing to be mobile is so important. There's a lot of really good resources out there for being mobile, and I'm still being or trying to be a steward and a, a student, I should say, and learn from those people how to be a good public land mobile hunter. I think if I do that, it's going to make it that much better for me on my private land parcels that I hunt. One thing I really try to hone in on is where is the food sources? I'm going to name drop here and listening to Dan Infault, he talks a lot about the cornfields of the Northwoods and what he's referring to as chop-offs. And those can be a really hot food source. Of course, acorns at the right time if you have them. Beech nuts, I'm told that there's good beech nut crops in certain parts of the state. Um, Those food sources, um, of course, are going to be the most important thing when you're talking about big woods. But what I tend to find is where a buck is bedding is generally stretched out in a much longer situation than it would be on a 40-acre chunk that you're hunting. That defined bedding might not be 200 yards. It might be a quarter to a half a mile away from where that is. It's usually the best security cover in that area. You can find a good buck. 
two years ago, I used this strategy to successfully harvest a five and a half year old nine pointer on the big woods at my cabin in upstate Pennsylvania. Laying out the scene, I was not able to harvest a mature deer with my bow. So opening day of rifle season, we went to an area that I knew, but I did not know well. When we arrived, there were many more trucks and hunters at this location than I fully expected. Now, this road is on top of the mountain. It runs parallel with the ridge and is lined with chop-offs on both sides. These chop-offs are the food source, but I don't tend to see deer using them a ton in daylight hours. They'll bed on the edges or places that people are overlooking, and the interior with a lot of the logging road access, I'm not finding a ton of deer on the interior. When I arrived that morning, what you would typically expect, there was a lot of orange within the first 200 yards of the road. There was people on the edges of the chop-off, some in tree stands looking into the chop-off from the edge, but nobody had really pushed that boundary and gone down over the face on the backside of that chop-off. And since I was willing to walk and explore because it was a slightly new area, and I did have good conditions for still hunting, I went into the backside of the chop-off into a hollow and found that transition line. It was a transition of elevation and vegetation type. When I got to that transition, there was no hunters in sight, and the first thing I saw was a deer. Of course, I jumped it because I'm not a very good still hunter, but I I was able to find where they were. I was starting to run into more sign. Now, as I started to drop down the mountain, I found myself going into a steep hollow. There was a point running to the north, and I decided to follow the hollow around and continue out the point. So with the deep hollow on my right, I still hunted on a logging road, continuing to look into where there was a transition of beech birch maple and then some scrub brush along a creek. Now, as I was walking out this ridge, I happened to jump a buck and I I made a great shot when he was running and dropped this beautiful nine-pointer. So I went down and got onto the bench that he was laying on and found myself right on that transition, a ton of rubs, scrapes, some beds. It was obvious that this buck and maybe other deer had been using this area significantly. I tell this story um, not necessarily to give a highlight of this rifle hunt. I think his setup is very, very useful opening week of archery season. It laid out the foundation of where pressure was, where food was, and where those transitions were on the backside and where I started to find bucks bedding. Where you find all those vegetation types meeting and terrain features meeting in the middle, that's where you started to find deer congregating. I don't think this is any different in how this lays out private land or public land, but how you go about hunting it can be very different. In the big woods of Lycoming County that I'm hunting, if I mess that one spot up in a 20-acre area, there are thousands of other situations just the same that I can go find. But I'm looking for those same features, or I'm trying to design those same features on my private land parcel 
the foundation of movement does not change in either of those situations, but the hunting strategy you take can be very different. If you're confined to private parcel borders and you need to maintain that movement and then strike when the iron is hot versus public land where go in for the best chance you have when you have the time to hunt. If you ruin it, the next opportunity, go find another one. Hopefully you've scouted and you know of other ones that you can dive in and try the same thing. Maybe use the information from your first failed hunt or unsuccessful hunt and use that to your advantage when you go in the next time. Now, another reason that I'll hunt public land in this matter is I don't have as much time to go to these locations that I normally would. It's two hours away versus where I'm hunting on private is 10 or right out my back door. So when I go to these locations, I want to make the most of it and hunt the best locations because what do I have to lose if I'm not going to be able to come for another month? Let's say I'm only going to make two trips in archery season and hunt the best locations. If I don't connect, I'm not coming back until rifle season. There's no harm, no foul in me going and trying. What do you have to lose? And that's another reason why I said earlier, I have a piece of public that I've been scouting and running cameras on close to my house. I talked about hunting when the time was right on my private piece. Weather or history of of deer and history of stands and when deer movement is good or you know maybe it's just I've got camera intel on a specific deer and I know when to hunt that but let's say you know I look throughout my my year October is a very busy time for me for work it's also a busy time for my family so when I want to typically hunt I might not have the ability to Let's say it's a Wednesday during the middle of the week here, and we've got this cold front, this perfect storm coming through that I would love to hunt, but I can't hunt. The week ahead on Monday, I've got free time. I've got somebody to watch my son. I've got a workload off. I've got the time to hunt, but it's poor wind poor temperature, poor this, poor that, I might not want to go and ruin one of my places on private land. Therefore, why not go and dive into a spot on public land? I don't think it's as good of a day as it could be the week before that I would have rather hunted, but it gets you in the woods. You know, there's a saying that you can't kill a buck if you're on the couch. And that is true. You really can't kill a deer on the couch unless you're, you know, maybe there's some somebody out there that's got a setup from their, their front step that they can shoot a deer. But that's not what this podcast is about. You got to go out in the woods and you got to put your time in. However, I think that saying has ruined a lot of private land parcels. I know plenty of pieces that people go to on a daily basis and hunt the daylights out of it because at any moment in any day, that big mature buck that they want to kill could cruise through. And my approach is the complete opposite. I want my piece to be secure and I will strike when the iron is hot and it's the best situation for me to be there because I've set it up for him to live there. So in this case, I'm using the public land as my fallback or my secondary option. Um, You could use any of this anywhere. 
you could do a vice versa situation in properties, or you could utilize all this for public pieces that, you know, maybe you want to put your eggs into one basket here at a certain time, but there's new areas you want to try. I'm not going to go and burn out those best locations if the conditions are wrong. I didn't get into too much detail on timing and weather and what I'm looking for in those situations. And that's probably a whole nother podcast. And there's probably already been a thousand podcasts done on that strategy. But I I really think it was important for me to talk about and give some context behind, uh, in my mind, what a lot of people are saying when it comes to being aggressive or being passive. I don't necessarily think that this private land strategy is being passive. I don't ever go into a tree stand and not have confidence that the stand location that I picked is going to be the one that I'm going to kill a mature deer on. If I'm hunting there, I think I've got a chance. But it's the way it's designed, it's the way you're accessing it, it's the timing of the hunt that is is way different. Vice versa. I think diving into the public land spots right off the bat is preventing anybody from ruining the spot before you do, and it's giving you an opportunity to put yourself in the best situation from the start. A lot of the time, deer on public land are being pressured. Now, if it's opening week, you know, we're approaching this first day of season here, maybe you don't go with the all-out strategy right away, depending on how much pressure there's been, but if you're like me, a lot of the places that I go... There's been people that have been scouting it. They've been going and pulling cameras. They've been using those access trails vigorously. Even though hunting season isn't open, the deer are already aware something is different. Something is off. And I think that is enough to push them into those tight quarter bedding areas or push them out of that spot that they might have been closer to the road or an easy access location that they may have been using earlier in the summer and pushing them into those remote bedding pockets. So if that's happening, and somebody is going to be hunting in those obvious locations off the road that look good, but they're not holding daylight deer, why not dive right in and get as close to where they're bedding and try to to kill them? Because where they're bedding is where they're in daylight, and that's what you got to do to be successful. So find that and capitalize before somebody ruins it or somebody does it before you. So there you have it. That's my two cents of when to be diving into bedding areas, when to be hunting food sources, when to be conservative, when to be aggressive. Again, there's probably a lot of other philosophies, but what I've gathered over time, that is a, a major reason why people have those differing opinions. And I think it has a lot to do with relative size of parcel and amount of hunting pressure in the area. So hopefully those are things that will help you decide how you're going to manage your hunt opening week from opening week all the way to the end of the season. I wish everybody the best of luck if you're going out in archer season uh, opening day here. I'm looking that sometime during the first week, to hopefully be out and be sitting on a food source of one of these beautifully manicured food plots that we've stressed over and hoping to have some success. We've been seeing some mature deer on cameras in September in daylight hours in these food plots, and I'm hoping that somebody can connect on something here soon. If a wind forecast doesn't work for me in the first week to hunt one of those sources, 
I'm probably going to try to take the first opportunity that I have where my wife can be home and watch our son. And I'll either dive in to something in the evening close to food or I'll venture out and I'll scout some more in the public land and set up on some hot, fresh sign if I can possibly find it. So whatever you're finding yourself, I hope you get out. I hope you enjoy creation. Take some time, be still, and be a woodsman. That's what it's all about. We'll see you next time.